This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend The Red Flag, A History of Communism by David Priestland. Even though I'm not halfway done with this current series, I'm already thinking about future multi-part episodes, and I want to do at least one run on the rise and fall of the Japanese left. Priestland's book is great for understanding the broader context of the communist movement, which is going to be very helpful for me, and could be very helpful for you, when we look at how that movement plays out in Japan. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 124, The Fall of the Samurai, part 8. We left off last week with the assassination of I Naosuke, Tairo and leader of the Tokugawa Bakufu, in March 1860. I's death sent shockwaves through Japan for a couple of reasons. First, it was the first case of overt political assassination since the start of this whole crisis. Others had been killed earlier, to be sure, but they had been executed by the government in a manner that, while heavy-handed, was also legal. E, on the other hand, had been killed by men who were explicitly rebelling against his governmental authority. They had submitted after his death, yes, but still, if you accept the definition that government is fundamentally defined by a monopoly of legitimate use of force, a definition made famous by the German sociologist Max Weber, then this was the beginning of the breakdown of the government. The second and far more immediate result of the assassination, however, was a complete lack of interested talent to step into the leadership vacuum left by Inouske. He had been doing his best to steer the Bakufu ship of state back on course. He had a clear idea of his goals, as restoring the primacy of the Bakufu in politics and in international relations in particular, but now there was nobody to continue that vision. There are a couple of reasons why nobody stepped into the dominant leadership position left by Inouske's death. Loyal opposition, you see, had never really been E's thing. He wanted people in the Bakufu to execute his ideas, not think up ideas of their own. As a result, E had generally staffed the Bakufu bureaucracy with people who agreed with his opinions. Not the best or the brightest, but the most agreeable found their way into Bakufu leadership during his tenure. In addition, there was that pesky business of assassination. After seeing what happened to E, not that many Bakufu officials were terribly interested in taking a firm stand on politics, lest they irritate the wrong people and end up just as headless as their old boss. Just about the only strong position Inouske's immediate successors took 
was finding the remaining assassins as quickly as possible. And, as you can imagine, while they cloaked the whole thing in righteous vengeance for their fallen leader, their actual motives were pretty self-interested, killing the assassins to make sure the assassins did not kill them. In the absence of a strong successor, the political initiative devolved to a group previously thought to have been defeated. The alliance of Tozama outsider daimyo and Tokugawa relatives among the Shimpan daimyo who had challenged Inosuke's policies and been suppressed as a result. E had, remember, placed many of these men under house arrest. After E's death, his successors, fearing that maintaining the house arrests would result in more assassinations, ordered all these men released. Two of the leading figures of anti-Inosuke opposition had died during their time in house arrest, Tokugawa Nariaki of Mito Domain, and Shimazu Nariakira of Satsuma Domain. The others, however, remained alive and were released. Among the most prominent men released was young Tokugawa Yoshinobu, son of Tokugawa Nariaki. However, Yoshinobu did not become the new daimyo of Mito Domain in his father's wake. In the complex family politics of the Tokugawa family, Yoshinobu had been adopted by a related branch of the family called the Hitotsubashi, who his father felt had a better claim on the position of shogun. So, in other words, Tokugawa Yoshinobu was biologically, but not legally, the son of his father, Tokugawa Nariaki. The father had adopted out the son to further his own political ambition, and make it more likely for that son to become shogun. Young Yoshinobu, who is all of 23 at this point, is going to play a big part in our story to come, but for now we will leave him as the newly released and reinstated head of his adoptive family, the Hitotsubashi. We're also going to leave Edo behind and concentrate on developments in the provinces. You see, part of what makes the Meiji Restoration pretty confusing is that it defies our expectations of what a revolution tends to look like. When we picture archetypal revolutions, maybe Paris in 1789 or Moscow in 1917, we tend to imagine unrest in the center of political power that then radiates outwards. The Bastille gets stormed, or the Soviets in St. Petersburg rise up, and the story from that point onward is the projection outwards toward the rest of the country of a change that's already taken place at the center. That's not, however, a good way to look at the Meiji Restoration. Arguably, it's not a good way to look at the French or Russian revolutions either, but that's a topic for another podcast. In the Meiji Restoration, however, things very obviously do not play out that way. There's no storming of the gates of Edo Palace to match the storming of the Bastille, and the one attempt to seize Kyoto and the Emperor by means of a violent anti-Tokugawa coup is going to be utterly defeated. Instead, what goes on is a revolution not in the capital, but in the provinces. The battleground became a series of domains in which pro-Tokugawa forces, or at least neutral forces, slugged it out against anti-Tokugawa forces. In these provincial battles, both sides will fight it out for control of the domain which usually either meant converting the daimyo to your point of view, 
or physically taking over the capital of the domain and using the daimyo as a sort of sword point political mouthpiece. Either way, this takes us into some new territory, and also means it's time for us to introduce one of the most important and famous archetypes of the Meiji Restoration, the Shishi. Shishi is a difficult term to translate. Despite being homophones, the two characters used in the word have different meanings. The final shi is the same one used in the word bushido, which means something like warrior. The first shi means something like plan, intention, or action. So usually, shishi is translated as men of spirit or men of action. That does miss a key distinction, though. These aren't just men of action, but specifically, and only, samurai of action. Specifically, Shishi were middle and low-ranking samurai for whom the death of Inosuke was something of an eye-opening moment. On March 23, 1860, e had been the most powerful man in Japan. On March 24th, he was a dead man. And what had made that change possible? Well, nothing more than the action of samurai from humble backgrounds, united in the sense of shared, righteous conviction. Looking to this example, bands of shishi cropped up in a variety of domains, all with the avowed purpose of, well, what exactly? The goals of these militant groups varied from domain to domain, but there tended to be a couple of common threads. First, these groups were anti-bakufu, convinced by Inosuke's purges that the Tokugawa government was rotten to the core. Every shishi group I've ever seen advocated the overthrow of the Tokugawa, though they didn't always agree on what would come next. Second, most shishi groups were in favor of some kind of imperial restoration. That attitude was pretty natural when you think about the analog we've been using this episode, the French Revolution. After 1789, French revolutionaries had to sit down and think about what would come after the fall of the feudal monarchy. The prevailing intellectual trend of the times was the philosophy of the European Enlightenment, and so that philosophy, with its emphasis on freedom, personal liberty, and equality, ended up setting the terms of the discussion for what would come next. Whether you liked the idea or opposed the idea, you were still reacting to the idea of Enlightenment philosophy. In the same way, the trend of intellectual discussion in 1860s Japan was emperor-centric. It was commonly accepted that the imperial court was the source of all political legitimacy and the focal point of Japan's own history. So it made sense that many of these radical groups looked to some kind of imperial government as being the natural thing that would come after the fall of the shogunate. Third, these groups tended to be dominated by disaffected lower samurai who had been frozen out of their domain's bureaucracy. They were, in other words, underprivileged or underemployed in the samurai class. So calls for the fall of the Tokugawa government and imperial restoration were usually combined with a demand for merit-based rather than status-based job placements for social reforms that would enable the shishi to rise to status and position. Fourth, these groups were broadly anti-foreign, a position that flowed from their imperial politics. 
After all, the Emperor had originally refused to endorse a new treaty with the Americans, and then had been strong-armed into it by that tyrant Inouske. That meant the Emperor wanted the foreigners gone, so the Shishi wanted them gone too. Finally, many of these groups embraced violence and extremism as a way to get things done. They saw the country as in crisis, which to be fair was increasingly the case, and believed that violence was the only way to rapidly rectify its problems. Anybody who got in their way would have to be dealt with ruthlessly. These groups sprang up in various domains around Japan, but did not initially come together into anything like a national movement. This was not the Jacobin Club, with leadership in Paris and societies around the land. Instead, each group of Shishi was bound to its own domain, and while they may have been aware of what fellow activists were doing in other domains, they were not allied in any broad sense. Indeed, in retrospect, many of these men seem hopelessly naive. Many of them didn't seem to have a plan besides committing some acts of assassination and terror in hopes of drawing attention to their cause. Again, they were not professional revolutionaries with a clear plan on how to claw their way to the top. Indeed, the whole notion of the Shishi has a bit of the glorious lost cause ring to me. Rather than having a revolutionary plan... Many Shishi groups seem to me to have aimed mostly at drawing attention to their ideas through violence, and to have consciously made the decision to leave the implementation of their ideas to others down the line. It's also important to note that these groups did not immediately start springing up in 1860. They crop up at different paces from region to region over the course of the next few years. The death of Inouske was not so much a clean break that opened the way for the rise of the Shishi, as it was a course correction. Previously, things had been moving in the direction of a more powerful central Tokugawa government. Now the trend was towards a spreading sense of violent activism. The responses on the domain level to these new problems were tremendously varied, and we're not going to get too deep into the weeds of the politics of individual Shishi groups, because down that rabbit hole lies madness. Instead, I'm going to generalize a bit about domain responses to the Shishi, and then detail a couple of specific movements that I think are important. So, to quickly recap, the domain governments which, in the 1860s, were confronted with the rise of the Shishi movement were dominated by factionalized bureaucratic politics. Government was not run by the daimyo. He generally just sat around, enjoying the privileges of high birth. Instead, it was run by mid-ranking bureaucrats who did the real work of government in the name of their socially superior but unskilled bosses. So broadly speaking, there were a couple of ways things could play out in a domain where a shishi group sprang up. In generally pro-Tokugawa Fudai domains, Shishi rarely appeared at all, and when they did, the leading samurai within that domain generally agreed on the need to suppress them. In Tozama and Shimpan domains, however, in the domains, that is, which went against Inousuke's policy line and which had been punished for it, things were not so automatic. Generally speaking, in these domains, one faction of the leadership 
would line up in favor of Shishi Domains, seeing the Shishi as a movement to potentially hinder the Tokugawa government with which they had so recently been at odds. Another faction would line up against the Shishi, seeing them as a bunch of dumb, troublemaking, radicalized kids who didn't really understand what they were suggesting would lead to war against the central government and almost certain defeat. These two groups would then fight it out, with the result being either the suppression of the Shishi or their rise to dominance over a domain. In most cases, the result was the former. For example, Satsuma Domain had an active group of Shishi out for vengeance in the name of their former leader, Shimazu Nariakira. However, the power behind the throne of the new child daimyo of Satsuma, Nariakira's brother Hisamitsu, was not interested in the Shishi or their ideas and saw them as a potential threat. Hisamitsu was conservative where his brother had been radical and wanted to co-opt the power of the Tokugawa rather than undermine it. As a result, he blocked pro-Shishi samurai from his government, though in a development that will be important later, he did not totally burn that bridge. Two samurai who had been close to his brother and were suspected of having Shishi ties, Okubo Toshimichi and Saigo Takamori, were kept around as potential conduits through which to reach out to the Shishi should doing so ever become politically expedient or useful. That careful bet-hedging on Hisamitsu's part will be important later. A powerful Shishi movement also appeared in Tosa domain on the island of Shikoku. Tosa, remember, was deeply divided between a ruling upper class who were generally pro-Tokugawa and a lower-ranking group of samurai who were generally anti-Tokugawa. As you might imagine, this was pretty fertile ground for Shishi politics, and in 1862, lower-ranking Tosa samurai founded their own Shishi society called the Kinnoto, the Honor the Emperor Society. The best-known member of that party was a young samurai named Sakamoto Ryoma, who will definitely be on the test. Sakamoto was from a lower-ranking samurai family. Tosa Domain actually allowed merchants to buy their way into the lower ranks of the samurai class, which was what Sakamoto's great-grandfather had done. However, as you might imagine, just because they'd bought the status didn't mean that samurai of more distinguished pedigrees treated them with any real degree of respect. The Sakamotos had to get by on a fairly meager income, with minimal chances for rising in the domain government, and it didn't help that young Ryoma showed little of the intellectual inclinations needed to rise in bureaucratic government. Ryoma did have one talent, though. He was a gifted swordsman, and as a result, he was sent by his domain to the national capital at Edo to study swordsmanship. It was while in Edo, at the tender age of 17, that Sakamoto heard the news that an American fleet had come into Edo Harbor and demanded an audience with the Shogun. This moment, the arrival of Commodore Perry, really became one of the defining moments in Sakamoto's political development. He bitterly felt the sense of national humiliation at the hands of the foreigner, with the depth of political rage that only 17-year-olds can really muster. The West was dangerous and untrustworthy, 
and the only way to deal with the threat it presented was with the hardest line possible. Five years later, Sakamoto would return to his home domain of Tosa, but the experience of helplessness in the face of the foreign threat would energize him and come to define his political career. Sakamoto quickly slipped into radical politics and became convinced that a totally unyielding stance against the West was the only way to ensure Japan's future. In that context, the radical politics of the Shishi fit him very well. He joined up with the Kinnoto shortly after its founding. Sakamoto, however, would soon split from the party he had just joined. In fact, it proved too radical for him. The Kinnoto leadership was incensed when it requested a voice in the government of Tosa domain, but was denied one by the leadership. The other members of the group endorsed a campaign of violent terror and assassination in reprisal for their perceived ill-treatment. Sakamoto, however, objected to this plan. He was not in favor of starting a violent conflict inside the domain itself. He also disapproved of the narrow focus of the Kinnoto. Its members were concerned primarily with Tosa Domain alone, but Sakamoto believed the issues at stake were national and that national solutions would be required to deal with them. When his fellow party members refused to listen to him, Sakamoto made a momentous decision. He would leave not only the Kinnoto, but Tosa Domain itself. Without permission from the domain government, which functionally made him an outlaw, Sakamoto snuck out of the domain, abandoning both his former allies and his own family. His relatives were devastated. His elder sister actually killed herself out of shame at his behavior, because, remember, he was doing this without the permission of the domain government, which you need to leave your domain. Still, Sakamoto was right about one thing the Kinnoto did not have a great plan for its own future. Two years after he left, they succeeded in assassinating a high-level Tosa official. The party's reward was to be rounded up in a massive police sweep, with its leadership executed. Sakamoto, however, may have eschewed violence against the Tosa government, but that did not mean he was some kind of pacifist. Instead, he wanted to attack those people he perceived as the real enemies of Japan, anybody with an interest in foreign ideas. This was a pretty common part of Shishi ideology. Anti-foreignism was always a big part of Shishi thinking, but the thing was that actual foreigners tended to be off on their well-armed ships or inside their various leased territories, surrounded by walls and well-armed guards. It was just too difficult to get to them. Far easier to target were pro-foreign traders, which is to say, those Japanese who took an interest in foreign ideas. Many a keen student of Western ideas lived in fear of a shishi attack. The scholar and intellectual Fukuzawa Yukichi spent the better part of a decade holed up in his home, so convinced was he that he would be stabbed to death the moment he stepped outside. Sakamoto's target, however, was not Fukuzawa, who was, after all, only a lowly translator at this point. Instead, he went after somebody more prominent, the commandant of the Tokugawa Bakufu's naval training school in Nagasaki, where the Tokugawa were training up cadets to form the core of a modern national navy that could protect the home islands from the foreigners. 
That commandant was none other than our old friend, Katsukaishu. If you don't remember Katsu, he was one of the students of Sakuma Shozan of Eastern Ethics and Western Science fame. The son of a drunk, Katsukaishu compensated for his father's failures by becoming a lifelong overachiever. His passion had always been naval affairs, and he'd been the one to captain Japan's first voyage abroad in 1860 to ratify the Harris Treaty. So clearly, here's a prominent pro-foreign quote-unquote traitor who could be dealt with very publicly. At least that was the plan, but it didn't really work out. The whole thing got flipped on its head in one of the most dramatic moments in Japanese history, and a moment that if it weren't attested to in multiple places by multiple people, I would assume was made up. You see, when Sakamoto made it to Nagasaki, he found Kaishu without too much trouble, and one day ambushed him in a secluded part of town. Yet, seeing an armed man rushing at him, Kaishu did not panic or run or beg for his life. Instead, he simply asked to be allowed to explain himself and why he felt foreign technology was worth understanding, and Sakamoto, in a move that has always baffled me, said, Okay. Picture that, really, if you will. A man rushes in to kill you, and instead of running or hiding or trying to grab the nearest heavy object and taking a swing, you start launching into an explanation of why killing you would be a bad idea. We don't know what Kaishu's exact words were. We have only a general idea, with the main theme being that Westerners could only be stopped by Western technology, so defending Japan required that technology... But however he phrased it, it must have been very convincing, because not only did Katsukaishu convince Sakamoto Ryoma not to kill him, Sakamoto then also asked to become Katsukaishu's student. Kaishu, incredibly, said yes. Sakamoto Ryoma, overnight, went from radical shishi to the chief lieutenant of Katsukaishu at the Bakufu Naval Academy. Kaishu's speech convinced him that fighting against foreign technology was foolhardy and that it was necessary to protect Japan to bring Western ideas and technology in instead of trying to expel them. That's where we'll leave him for now, but we'll have a lot more to say about young Sakamoto Ryoma before things come to an end. The other important Shishi movement I want to talk about is unfortunately not quite as dramatic as the sudden career changes of Sakamoto Ryoma, but arguably it's way more important. Here we have to return to the domain of Choshu. Choshu, if you'll remember, was in the southwest, at the tip of the main island of Honshu. The lords of Choshu, the Mori family, had been opponents of the Tokugawa and remained, if not openly antagonistic, at least somewhat hostile to Tokugawa hegemony. Most recently, the Mori had been forced by E. Nausuke to hand over one of the most prominent intellectuals, young Yoshida Shoin, for execution. Yoshida himself might be dead, but his students were not, and as you might imagine, they became the core of an anti-Tokugawa radical shishi movement in Choshu. One man rose to lead them, Takasugi Shinsaku, who, all of 21 at the time of his teacher's death, was one of the oldest of Yoshida's students. Takasugi himself is a pretty interesting guy, 
a fiery political activist, and, as we'll see down the line, a talented war leader, he was also a bit of a dilettante who enjoyed the good life and a bit of scandalish leisure in a way that really sets him apart from most shishi, who tended to affect a more stoic attitude. Under Takasugi were three men who were not yet in leadership positions, but who are going down the road to find themselves at the top of the heap. Three men who you could probably finger as the real winners of the Meiji Restoration. Inoue Kaoru, Yamagata Aritomo, and Ito Hirabumi, who were respectively 24, 22, and 19 at the time of Inosuke's death. At this moment, they're fresh-faced recruits in Takasugi's little political club, but you can rest assured we'll be spending a good amount of time with these three in weeks to come. What makes Takasugi interesting, however, is that he's one of very few Shishi leaders who succeeded in getting a degree of official sanction and protection from his domain. A faction within Choshu's government decided to protect Takasugi and his followers, and give him relative freedom to operate. Now, Choshu's internal politics are ridiculously complicated, and down the path of me trying to explain them lies madness. So I'm just going to give you the short version for why Takasugi was tolerated. The faction that ran the domain at the moment saw him as more useful than harmful, and in a post-Inosuke age, they were willing to take the risk of harboring someone who was anti-Tokugawa, because such a man, well a political liability, could also be used to indirectly harass the Tokugawa. Shishi politics are going to be a big part of our story going forward, but for now I'm going to leave the men of spirit right here. They're a rising political force that is increasingly threatening the stability of the government, but right now they're more of a nuisance than an actual threat. Next week, we're going to turn back to the center of political action on the national stage. In the wake of Inosuke's death, the Bakufu is going to take a new, relatively conciliatory direction with the imperial court, but as it attempts to bring a degree of stability, the Bakufu will be forced to confront rising political violence. Assassination was now a viable political tool, and as we'll see in the coming weeks, it will increasingly become the tool of first and last resort for Shishi around Japan. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Trevor Stewart, Stephanie Ellis, and Chad Hewitt for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Fall of the Samurai, Part 9.